So we have been traveling through the book of Psalms a bit. Um, Psalms are phenomenal. We looked at Psalm 88, which is despair. It's the darkest chapter in the Bible. Last week, we looked at Psalm 8, which is identity. It's God looking at his masterpieces, you and me, and declaring what we are. Brilliant. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 51, which is a psalm on guilt. It's how do you and I deal with guilt? And when I was putting together my list of the psalms I wanted to talk about, it was right after we had those people come up with their signs and their, you know, their agenda, essentially. And after they had their signs, what happened to me was this. I started getting the phone calls from ladies and meetings with ladies who before they knew Jesus had abortions and that was like PTSD for them. So now they're plagued with guilt and, oh, I can't believe this. And so then I've got to walk with these ladies and try to say, hey, all right, yes, no doubt. Abortion is wrong. This is a huge issue. And, and try to comfort as well as know the power of Jesus to forgive and to cleanse and to transform. And like that, that whole situation, they were back Wednesday. I'll be honest with you, makes me mad. And uh, on Wednesday, I wanted to do some things to them that Jesus would not want me to do. So pray for me. I'm like, because I know how it's hurting people I love. And so in, on such a key, important subject, abortion, let's not do the wrong methods. Let's do the right methods, you know? And so I just, I, I talked with one of them. And I said, the measure of any philosophy is if it works everywhere. So we can agree abortion is sin. 100%. We can agree. But what you're doing now is you're taking abortion and you're putting it on signs and you're parading these signs of sin around. I said, what other area does that work? Should I take pictures of gruesome murder scenes post them on pictures and say, don't murder? Should I take pornography, which is probably the leading cause of a lot of these abortions? Should I take a graphic picture of pornography, put that sin on a sign and parade it around? No. So your methods are wrong. Man, we can agree on your message, but man, your methods are wrong. And what they're causing is you guys come and do your craziness and then it's up to the pastors of Edgewater to then try to help people and pastor them that are, you know, struggling from your message. It's just not right. So I keep thinking, like this proverb keeps bouncing in my head. It's Proverbs 24, verse 4 that says, Do not answer a fool in his folly, or you'll become like him. <laughs> I want to though, I want to get signs and put stuff that they've done and show up at their workplaces and their houses and be like, oh yeah, I can play this game too. I know where you work. So that's what I want to do. And the next one though says, answer a fool in his folly or he'll think he's wise, right? You're like, what, which one do you do? Well, you pray and you seek Jesus. What's the best for me to do in this situation? So I, I covet your prayers because there's a lot of Matt in me and sometimes there's not a lot of Jesus in my decisions so I keep praying well, what's the best thing to do I want to see people understanding yes the weight 
of this issue of abortion, but also you need to be comforting and graciously pastoring people that have made huge mistakes in their past as well. And they need to know the grace and the forgiveness and the cleansing of Jesus Christ. So out of that has come all these ladies that have struggled with guilt. I did this 30, one of them that I had this brilliant conversation with, it was 33 years ago. And she said, it was like yesterday for me when I had to deal with this and process through this. And she's got a phenomenal husband who's just walking with her and loving her. And oh, it's brilliant. So guilt, past mistakes, sin, stuff you did wrong. It can haunt you. It can plague you. It can be, oh, I hope nobody finds this out. What if somebody finds out, right? So how do you deal with that? Because everyone's got it. Psalm 51 is the medicine for you and me. I think a lot of believers deal with guilt today because we actually don't know how to repent. So we think we know how to repent, but we actually don't know how to repent. But since we think we know how to repent, we never study how to repent. So that's Psalm 51. And we're gonna start with a real quick Greek lesson because there's two words in the Greek language that talk about, they both are translated repentance, but they're very different, all right? So here's the first Greek word. It's pronounced metamelethes. And what it is is this, it's regret for consequences. So it's used of Judas in Matthew 27, verse three, where he repented after he had denied Jesus and betrayed him, right? Well, what was he repenting of? Ah, this didn't turn out the way I liked. It was consequences. So that's the first one. The second one is this word used a lot more and it's meta noise. And it's changing direction because you regret your character. It's, I can't believe I was capable of doing that kind of thing. God help me. That's, that's the one we want. Okay, so I'll try to explain it like this. Um, one of my daughters, uh, she still does love candy, but when she was little, it was like a passion for candy. So many years ago, she had gone to a party. She came home. She had this bag of candy. It was right around dinner time. And so I told her, hey, don't eat your candy till after dinner. Then you can have some. Well, five minutes later, I look over at her. She's got brown stuff on her face and something in her mouth. So I said, sweetie, are you eating your candy? She's like, no, I'm not eating my candy. Like, why do you have brown stuff on your face? Well, it must be brown marker, dad. No, it's chocolate, right? Now spit out what's in your mouth and out came like 18 strawberry Jolly Ranchers. I'm like, goodness, give me your bag of candy. She instantly grabbed the hold of my leg. She's four years old. She grabs the hold of my leg. Daddy, I am so sorry for eating my candy. Will you forgive me? And like she got a real tear to come out of her eye. I'm like, wow, yeah. Look out, future husband. Man, this is good. So um, I said, yes, I forgive you. Let's sit down and eat dinner. So we sit down. She sits right next to me. She is petting my arm. Daddy, I love you, daddy. I love you, right? So she's eating her food. And then I had put her candy on the counter. And she said, dad, after lunch, after dinner, can I have my candy back? I said, no, no, you can't. And she snapped. 
four years old, 40 pounds. She just looks at me and she says, then I will go over to the counter and I will grab my candy. And normally I don't engage my kids this way, but she just got me. I'm like, what? what? Then I'll take your candy and I'll put it up on the top of the cabinets. She said, I will grab a stool. I will bring it to the counter. I will climb up there and I will grab my candy. I said, no, you will not because you're going to bed right after dinner. She said, I will wake up at midnight and I will come, right? I went, ow, where are you? Which one was she? So 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, there's worldly sorrow and it leads to destruction. But there's godly sorrow that brings about life. Worldly sorrow is, oh man, I got caught, bummer. Doesn't help you. Godly sorrow, I can't believe that I'm the kind of person that could do this thing. Oh God, change me. Oh, life, life. Esau and Jacob are two examples of of men that had worldly sorrow and the end of their life is not good. They didn't care that they were the kind of people that were capable of these actions. They just cared that they got caught. And it's big. As a pastor, here's what happens. I'll deal with people stuck in cycles of sin. And now 15 years into this thing, I've noticed this, that people that are in cycles of sin, when we start talking about their sin and start dealing with it, I'll know almost instantly if they're going to stay in the cycle. Because they'll do of one of three things is gonna come up. Instead of real repentance over sin, it's worldly sorrow, and they'll do this. Number one, they'll blame. Well, I wouldn't have stole from the company if they just paid me more money. Yeah, you're not gonna be free. Well, I wouldn't have committed adultery if my spouse was just fill in the blank. Oh, you're not gonna get free. So blame. Or number two, validation. Matt, there were these circumstances. I didn't have a choice. I had to do this, right? You would have done the same thing. Or thirdly, thirdly is comparison. I know that what what I did wasn't quite right, but you should hear what my wife did. Okay, you're not gonna be free. Those are all worldly sorrow and you won't break the cycle. You're gonna be stuck in it. So real repentance is brilliant. We need to learn how to really repent because then we get cleansed, we get freed. So Psalms, this Psalm especially, it's a PhD on repentance. And I'm just gonna scratch the surface again. It is so brilliant. It's so amazing. But here's the context in which it was written. David, King David, committed adultery with Bathsheba. Lies about it tries to get Uriah, the husband, to cover. He doesn't, so he kills, he murders Uriah. Adultery, lying, murder. Nathan the prophet marches into the throne room, confronts David in his sin and in his garbage. David repents and writes this. And because he repents correctly, he recovers And he goes down in history, even though he's a murdering, lying, adulterer, he goes down in history as a man who was after God's heart. Man, that's recovery. Recovery. And you might sit in here right now and think, well, I'm a good person. I don't need repentance. Was David a good person? 
Man before that killed Goliath, wrote the Bible, but he still fell. And the Bible says this, it's 1 Peter chapter five. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want God's resistance or God's grace? Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he'll lift you up. God, I need your grace and I need your mercy. That's what I need, okay? So that's Psalm 51. I'm gonna read it and then we're just gonna talk about the first couple of verses because that's all I have time for. But it's brilliant on repentance, getting rid of this weight of guilt and being set free by the power of Jesus into something brand new. And you'll see that all in this text. So Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret or the deep of my heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Psalm 51. So before we jump in to this step-by-step process of repentance, I want you to see something. Verse three, this is what David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You ever felt that way? About a sin that you committed? Where it just haunts you. You go to sleep thinking about it, you wake up thinking about it. You're driving in your car, you're thinking about it. When you're working something like just mowing a lawn or whatever, you're thinking about it. It's just this weight on you. It's ever before you. And we've all had seasons like that. We all have that kind of guilt. Mark Twain, that classic writer and a big time prankster, 
So he sent out to 12 of his friends this telegraph. If you're young and you don't know what a telegraph is, it's the original Twitter. 160 characters or less with a stop at the end. So he just sent this out to 12 of his buddies. It said, all has been discovered. Flee at once, stop. Within 24 hours, all 12 of his buddies had left the city because we all have it. We all have skeletons in our closet that we say, if this is discovered, oh no, oh no. So how do we get rid of that? Well, I'm gonna give you three kind of steps you see in here. It's with your mind and with your mouth and with your heart. So first, first, with your mind, you gotta own it. So I'm gonna read over verses one through three, and I'm gonna kind of uh, exaggerate some words, see if you can figure out what David is saying. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. With your mind, you gotta own this. What David is saying is this, I did it because I wanted to do it. I'm not blaming somebody, I'm not validating, I'm not comparing. I did this because I most wanted to do it. So Jonathan Edwards has this brilliant essay that when it comes to decisions and sin, it's what we most wanted to do, right? So people will say to me, and I've talked with them, right? I had to lie or I would have got fired from my job. And what I have to say to them is, well, then you made a choice for money above your own personal integrity. You wanted money more than you wanted your own personal integrity. That was a choice you made. You did in that moment what you most wanted to do. And this is serious. So you can go back if you want and read the interviews that people had with the Auschwitz guards that oversaw the gassing of children. And they asked them like, how could you do that? These are children. Their answer, because I knew if I didn't do it, then I'd be gassed. Well, you did what you most wanted to do then. Because there were people that made the choice, gas me instead. And history is full of those kind of people that said, nah, I will not compromise on this. Step one in sin is, with your mind, you have to own it. I did what I most wanted to do. David does not blame Bathsheba. He doesn't say, if only she would have put on more clothes. Nope. Doesn't blame Uriah. If only he would have gone home, I wouldn't have had to murder him. Nope. Doesn't say, well, the pressure of the kingdom is so great and I've got all this stuff on me. It's just, I couldn't handle it. Nope. I did what I most wanted to do. It's my transgression. It's my sin. You want to be free from guilt? You want true repentance? That is step one. I did this because I wanted to do it. It's my transgression. It's my sin. It's my iniquity, period. I'm not blaming or validating or comparing. I did it. Step one. Step two, with your mouth, you have to confess it. Verse four, 
This one takes a little bit of work to get to. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Here's the key. So that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. With his mouth, he confesses it. So right now we live in a culture that says every person can do what's right in their own sight. We talked about that last week. It's about what I feel or I am what I say, right? Every person gets to do what's right in their own eyes. It's Jiminy Cricket. Let your conscience be your guide. Is that a problem to let your conscience be your guide? Yeah. Serial killers, let their conscience be their guide. A lot of them will say, well, I was supposed to kill all these prostitutes, right? Why? They're letting their conscience be their guide. You can be very careful about the conscience. It can be really messed up. So there's this idea now that you just, hey, everyone just figure it out on their own. And it actually goes back to this guy. His name is Jean-Paul Sartre. So he's a philosopher. You can read him if you want. Um, He was an existentialist and he was also a social moral relativist, meaning this. He said, every culture has to define for themselves what is right or wrong. And it is wrong for an outside culture to look at another culture and to judge that culture on what they decide. Now it's actually got much smaller. Every group, little group gets to decide what's right for them or wrong. And any outside group cannot judge that group, right? So that's where we're at today. He was so dedicated to this that he went to the Nuremberg trials where Nazis were being tried for their atrocities, killing 10 million people, 6 million Jews. He went there and said, you guys are wrong to have this trial. He protested it, right? That's how dedicated he was to this, that no culture should judge on their culture. Well, there's this article on this. You can look it up if you want. I'll give you the synopsis of it, but it's called this. Um, Anthropologists, comma, cultural relativism, comma, and universal human rights. And here's the article. It's written by a PhD lady. She was a cultural anthropologist. Her specialty was the Sudanese people. So for 10 years, she's given herself to studying anthropology. She's been told over and over, as an anthropologist, you just stand back and you observe, but you never get involved. You watch, but you don't judge. That's their culture. Let them figure it out for themselves. You're just here to report on what's happening. Do not get involved, right? That's what anthropologists are supposed to do. So she goes to the Sudan. She's hanging out with the Sudanese. She's in there for a while. She's just doing what she's been taught to do. Just watch, don't judge, don't do anything. It's not right, you can't. Until they took all these little girls and they did female genital mutilation. And she couldn't take notes anymore. And all of her training was telling her, you just gotta watch this, you can't judge this. But she couldn't. And so that's where she writes this paper. Like, really? Isn't there basic human rights? But in the paper, she just comes to, I don't even know why I felt this way, right? I was trained not to feel this way. I was trained just to to say, I'm just observing and they're doing what's right for them. But she said, I couldn't. Because there was something in me saying, that's wrong. But she had no source for it. No reason to feel that way, right? What gave me as an American the right to judge them as their culture? And yet I felt it. Right? Who gets to say what's right? Some cultures don't let women vote. 
Don't let them get driver's license. Don't let them come out of the house with their husband. Why is that wrong and we're right? Who gets to say? Well, here's what David does. Here's what David says. David says, hold on a second. God gets to say. You may be justified in your words. You said adultery and murder are wrong. You are justified in your words, right? Today, sin is, for one people, we say it's a sin for another person, it's an identity, right? Well, who's right? David would say, God gets to be right. If he made this place, and he did, he gets to say what's right or wrong. So David here is doing a very important thing. He is agreeing that God gets to set the standard, which is confession. So in the New Testament, there's a word used for confession. It's the Greek word homo legeo. Homo means same, legeo means language. All confession is, is you're speaking the same language as God. God, if you said this is sin, I'm agreeing with you. You set the standard. You set the, what's right or wrong. You get to do, and you get to determine what is right or wrong on this earth. But Matt, I just don't feel it's a sin. But Matt, I just want to act authentically on how I feel. Well, as a follower in Jesus, you are not to act authentically on how you feel. Jesus says this, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow him. That Christianity is not about me acting authentically or becoming a better Matt. Christianity is about me becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And I do that through denying myself, taking up my cross, and saying, Jesus, if you said this is the way it is, then I'm agreeing with you. I'm confessing that is sin. I'm agreeing. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. Change us, transform us, give us clean hearts and right spirits and renew the joy of his salvation. That's what happens when we confess. It's the course to change. So with your mind, you own it. With your mouth, you confess it. God sets a standard. And I agree with him. And then thirdly, with your heart, you get to the root of it. So notice something. It should have caught you off guard. It's verse four. He's murdered somebody, he's committed adultery, and he's sinned. But what does David say, verse four? Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. God, I just sinned against you. What about Uriah, who's dead? It seems like you sinned against him. What is David saying here? Here's what he's saying. Before David could commit physical adultery, he had to first commit spiritual adultery on God. He had to somehow assassinate God's character to allow him to freely do what he wanted to do. So if you look at the Bible in Genesis 3, the very first sin, what happens there? The snake says to Eve, oh, God doesn't want you to eat of this fruit because he knows in the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him. What was Satan doing to Eve? 
He was saying, God's not good. God's holding out on you. God's not letting you reach your full potential. Look, God's holding away. He's not good. The only way you and I as a believer can ever sin freely is somehow we have to either assassinate the goodness of God, God's holding out on me, or we assassinate the holiness of God. That God doesn't care about holiness. He just cares about me being happy. Okay, so there's a show called The Bachelor, I guess. I don't personally watch it. I don't know anything about it, but I was very interested in the Twitter war that happened between two Christians on the show. This guy, I think his name is Luke, and this gal named Hannah Brown. So Luke was defending like, hey, sexual relations are reserved for marriage. One man, one wife, life. And then Hannah Brown was like, uh-uh. And so she tweeted out this tweet, and you can look it up if you want. I'm, I'm uh, trying to quote it exactly, but she said this. I can have sex with whom I want, and the next day Jesus still loves me. So what was she doing? She was assassinating the holiness of God. The only way you and me can sin freely, and David's hitting it on the head right here, is we have to first assassinate God's either his goodness or his holiness. That has to happen. God's holding out on me. Or God just wants to be happy, right? And this marriage isn't making me happy, so I'm out. Or abstaining from sex isn't making me happy, so I'm gonna do what I want, Right? That's the only way it works. So here's what he does. David knew this. I left your loving kindness. It's the Hebrew hased. I left your loving kindness. And once I left your loving kindness, that made me starve for any love. And I found it in the wrong spot. So before I ever sinned against anyone else, I first sinned against you. So that's why the Psalm begins. Look at verse one, it's brilliant. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. What does David do? Before he begins confession and repentance, he reminds himself about God. God. I have to remember who God is. It's why Jude puts it like this. You and I are to keep ourselves in the love of God. Reminding ourselves about his nature and his goodness. That's what we're supposed to be. And then verse six, he says this, I need your truth in the deep secret parts of my heart. We need to have the gospel as believers pressed into the deep part of our hearts. The gospel of Romans 8.32 that says, if God spared not his only son, but delivered him up on our behalf, how shall he not with him give us all good things? If Jesus gave us his best and he did, he's going to, take care of the rest. And if I don't have that thing right now, hey, it's because it's not good for me. That's the gospel. We got to press into our life. And when we do, it dispels the lies of the enemy. Keeps us from that path of bitterness and guilt and anger and problems. Here's what's incredible to me about David. He's not worried about consequences, is he? God, you judge me. You'll be justified in your judgment. He's not fearing losing the kingdom, is he? He's writing this psalm, a public psalm that everyone will read. It would have been like Trevor coming up here this morning and be like, hey, I got a new song for you guys. Uh, Words will be above. It's about my personal sin. Join in when you can. You'd be like, what? That's nuts. 
that's just no fear. I don't care about people's opinion of me. Why? Because I'm getting set free from this thing. I'm getting set free. I don't care. That what I care about most is this. I hurt my heavenly father who loves me so much. I did damage to the kingdom, to Jesus. That's repentance. That has great fruit. That's when your heart knows I've repented because I could care less about who knows about this. Because the most important thing was I hurt Jesus. I hurt my heavenly father. And there's a way in repentance to actually know, am I a religious person? Or am I gospel-centered Jesus person? Repentance for religious people is this. I just lost something. Oh no. I thought I was better than that. I'm worse than that. Oh, right? Repentance for a gospel Jesus person. Not that we love repentance, but it's this. Oh my goodness. You've showed me somewhere where I was broken. Heal me. It's the path forward, right? I I compare it to this to people. If you had this car that like intermittently wouldn't start every morning, like Tuesday morning it starts, but Wednesday it doesn't. And no one can quite figure out what it is. Or you got a computer that glitches or a phone that glitches. When someone finally figures out the problem, how do you feel? Are you like, you nerd and geek? I wish you'd never pointed out that problem. Or are you like, thank you. That's the way repentance should be to the believer. Oh, oh. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me on the path everlasting. I didn't even know that was in there. Thank you that you exposed that glitch. Heal me now. Change me. Transform me. Creating me a clean heart. Renewing me a right spirit, right? And the rest of this chapter is, David's like, praise God, I've been cleansed. I've been changed. I've been made white as snow. That's real repentance. It's brilliant. And we have a chance to do that really here at the table. And we can go to this table and we can confess and we can repent and we can do what we're supposed to do in that partnership. And then we say, Jesus, do what you can only do. Change my heart. Heal me. Forgive me. Make me white as snow. So Jesus, this morning, as we come to the table, for those that have come in here weighed with guilt, their sin is ever before them. I pray that you would set us free today. That we would own it. We did what we most wanted to do. And we confess it, agreeing with you. You're the one that gets to set the standard. And we agree. And that with our hearts, we'd say, push the good news into us so that we don't do this again. May we know you are a holy, loving, heavenly father that wants the best for us but will also chase after us and discipline us because we're your kids. May we relish both your holiness and your love. And may we go from here suited up, prepared to walk back out into our county and really go to war with a culture, with a kingdom, that has set itself against us 
and you. So may we eat and drink of strength, we pray. We ask this in your name. Amen.